in the name of the one true and living God. Amen. <clears throat> the fact that there are three readings at the Eucharist today is something new for us, but it's also something familiar. For the prayer book has encouraged us to use three readings on a Sunday, and for good reason, too. There's the reading from the Gospel, and no one would omit that. We shouldn't want to leave out a passage from the Hebrew Bible, which was scripture to the early Christians, nor a passage from one of the letters, mostly St. Paul's, where the theological and ethical ramifications of Jesus' good news are first wrestled with and set against the religious and social worlds to which Paul brought the gospel. But many of us will remember the prayer book of our younger years, where there were only two readings, a gospel text and a passage from one of the epistles. Why, you could go almost through the whole church year without hearing from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, at all. Obviously, the readings for our Sunday Eucharist, as set out in our prayer book, are an attempt to rectify this. I was in seminary at the time when these lists of readings were first being argued over and decided upon. And I remember having coffee at breakfast where several of the professors, members of the committee responsible for compiling the Sunday readings, would gather to chew over what to include in these new readings or what is known as the lectionary. They were determined to get as much variety in their choices from the Hebrew scriptures as they could. They chose several passages from the Song of Songs and wondered if anyone would ever preach on them. They knew the answer, and these passages were nixed in the final revision. They thought about including more than usual from the book of Revelation. Are you crazy, was the response. But there was one failure in this lectionary that's been used now for more than 40 years, and it didn't get revealed till people started preaching on these texts. It turned out that the Old Testament reading was used by preachers mostly to make the gospel passage shine the greater, or to show what was thought to be imperfectly understood in the Hebrew scriptures had been revealed in its perfection or clarity in the gospel. The result was that the Old Testament wasn't listened to or preached on for its own sake, but mostly as a handmaid <clears throat> or a footnote to the gospel or epistle. This has meant that preaching on texts from the Old Testament hasn't allowed the passages to yield their own experience of God and of God's justice and compassion. And this state of affairs has provoked a whole new generation of professors to sit around tables somewhere drinking coffee, coming up with selections of readings from the Hebrew scriptures that stand on their own. From time to time, we use these 
on Sunday. But as lectionary change is an ongoing process, I'll leave the story of that here. When I looked for the, at the readings for this Sunday and thinking I had to choose two of the three of them, I was flummoxed. How could I possibly choose? And I remembered my seminary profs talking about the way they chose readings. Every once in a while, let's select three readings, they said, that are so fabulous that the preacher will be unable to make a choice between them <clears throat> and will attempt to swallow all of them in one fell swoop. And they chuckled. This Sunday's readings are a case in point. <clears throat> How could I possibly choose between Isaiah's experience in the temple or St. Paul feeling badly that he was the last to have had Jesus appear to him as if he were the final one chosen for the team when the sides were picked. And this Sunday's gospel, with its unforgettable image of Simon Peter being told to go out into the deep water, go deep, where the fish will be plentiful. Which one could I leave out? Hence, three readings. I trust you'll get out of church before dinner. <clears throat> With the faces of my old professors firmly in my mind and their jovial laughter in my ears, I'm going to honor them today by seeing what I can harvest from these three readings. As one of these profs used to say of a paper I present to him, sometimes it's not the success that counts, but the attempt. So let me start with the Isaiah passage. Isaiah's in the temple at Jerusalem, and he has this experience of God seated on a throne with seraphim surrounding him, singing, holy, holy, holy. In the past, I've probably preached a tall stack of sermons on one aspect or another of that vision. But in the process, I've left out what happens to Isaiah next. The other important thing, how the angel comes down to touch Isaiah's lips with a fiery coal so that what he says will be pure. For it's God's intention to make Isaiah a prophet to the people of Israel. Then there's the passage from Paul's first correspondence with the Christians at Corinth. He has a strange way of commending himself to the Corinthians, calling himself an abnormal birth, the least of the apostles, indeed not fit to be called one. But of course, the Corinthians weren't fooled. They knew Paul to be tenaciously devoted to them, smart and contentious, and occasionally quite unintelligible with so many thoughts popping out of his head at one and the same time. But to hear Paul talk, you'd think he was still the coat check guy for those on their way to stone Stephen. And finally, there's Peter, the fisherman out on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been preaching from a boat that Peter and the other men had left on the shore. 
And they were busy untangling their nets, washing them and laying them out to dry, filled with a gloomy awareness that they'd been fishing all night and had caught nothing. When Jesus was done teaching, he turned to Peter and said he should put out his boat into deeper water. He'd find fish there. But Peter answered Jesus, Oh, Master, we've been out on the lake all night fishing, and we've caught nothing. Nada. It's disappointing, and we're tired. We just want to take a nap. So let's take these stories a bit further. And to help me do that, this Sunday's collect comes to my rescue. Remember how you prayed for the liberty of an abundant life. Not a life that's just good enough, nor a life that limps along, but an overflowing life, an abundant life. Abundance in the sense of an abundant harvest, abundant good health, abundant well-being, that kind of life. The three men in this Sunday's readings were running the risk of accepting a sufficient life for an abundant one. To start with, take Paul. At this point in his life, he seems content to think of himself as the runt of the litter of the apostles, the last and the least. Paul's comfortable presenting himself to the Corinthians in a way that can't help but put a damper on his genius. <clears throat> Telling the Corinthians in his second letter to them how like a fool he is, that he even speaks like one, and that he believes God has given Paul a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being puffed up for having been given an experience something like the one Isaiah had had. Such a life might be sufficient for Paul, but it's not abundant. It'll never make him an apostle. He needs to claim the apostleship he's been given. He needs to preach the truths of the good news boldly. From the height of the Areopagus, proclaiming the resurrection of the dead, sailing the length and breadth of the Mediterranean, planting churches, setting his sight on Rome to proclaim the gospel in the very belly of the beast, crowning his faith by dying for it. Now that's an abundant life, and that's what Paul of Tarsus was made for. And Peter, was he made to sleep off a night after he'd caught nothing? Go out farther into the lake, go deeper, and there you'll find your catch. And more than that, if you go deep, Peter, your days as a catcher of fish is soon to be over. Soon you'll be hauling in believers in the good news. You'll catch people. Don't be satisfied, Peter, with a sufficient life. Embrace the abundant one. And lastly, Isaiah. I'm sure he'd have been content meditating on that vision he had of the Almighty One and the myriads of angels singing their unforgettable song, the clouds of incense and the glorious garments the Almighty wore. 
But wonderful as that was, it was only a sufficient life for Isaiah as God saw it. If Isaiah were to have an abundant life, he had to go farther. His lips were purified to speak truth to God's reluctant people. Abundant life for Isaiah was to face his fellow men with the scalding judgment of God and the visions God was to show him. He'll have to tell the authorities of Jerusalem that they'd made a treaty with death and of the raging torrent that will carry them all away. Isaiah will speak of the host of heaven being rolled up like a scroll. But there will be words of comfort, too. A vision of the wilderness renewed, bursting into flower, and a way of holiness appearing. It was sufficient for Isaiah to have experienced the wonder of God, but what gave his life abundance was to speak of God's justice and joy jostling with each other, visions both of the way to death and the highway to life. And now, what of us? Does none of this matter to us? Are we looking at these readings the way you look at pictures in an art gallery? The lives of these men haven't been remembered for some thousands of years only to provide amusement for an idle spectator. And I'd say your time were better spent visiting the National Gallery in Washington, where there are paintings of prophets and saints plenty to walk by. What Isaiah, Peter, and Paul were challenged to discover is just what we're challenged to find. Whatever our life is now is but a stage along the way towards which God is leading you. Beware a life that's merely sufficient. Keep going until you achieve an abundant one. Where would Isaiah have been if he'd stayed gazing at the heavenly court and the angels innumerable, mesmerized by the sound of their music? Where would Peter have been if he had not ventured out onto the deep but stayed content with what he had, hugging the shore? And Paul, would he have ever preached the fullness of the gospel to kings, to philosophers, and to countless people hungry for the truth if he kept thinking he was one of God's mistakes. Pursue the abundant life. Seek it. Restlessly seek it. Become who you are, who God sees and knows you to be. Perhaps you don't know what that is. Ask God to tell you. Ask me says God what you want. Ask boldly. Ask for much, for I have much to give you. And wait patiently for God to answer. And when you hear, you'll know the full depths of meaning found in the psalm we prayed earlier in this service and can pray it with a new meaning. When I called, O Lord, you answered me. You will make good your promise and purpose for me, for your love 
endures forever. Do not leave your work unfinished, O God. Amen.